Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Code 9. I'm your host, Tiffany Cook, and today I am speaking to an incredible human being, Detective Sergeant Carmen Butcher, a Northern Territory policewoman and bearer of one hell of a personal story she'll be sharing with us today. Carmen was stumbled upon by our founder, Mark Thomas, on a recent trek to Tasmania, and you'll hear a little bit about that story as well. I hope that you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And remember, as we say at the Code 9 Foundation, you are never alone. Carmen Butcher, welcome to the Code 9 Foundation podcast. Conversations with Code 9. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, mate? We've just been having a right old whinge about the cold weather. Well, I have anyway, and you've gracefully accepted that level of whinging. (laughs) (laughs) It's cold. I'll agree. (laughs) Recently introduced to me by the wonderful Mark Thomas. He said, this woman's a ripper. She's been through some amazing stuff. You should have a chat to us. I said, yeah, all right. Maybe. (laughs) Tell us about the trek you've just been on for a start. Uh, well, actually, it was Tomo that, that organised it through Code 9. So we went on a, the overland trek in winter. We have to put in winter on there because apparently that makes it a way better trek or a way better accomplishment. So we just did um, seven days, six nights and seven days, walking through Tasmania in some of the um, coldest, nastiest, deepest snow that I've ever seen in my life coming from the desert. <laughs> oh, Wow. But there was also some beautiful parts after the snow. <laughs> yeah. Tell me what was appealing about about the trek. How is it how is it pitched to you guys? What's the what are you going there to do, experience, see and feel? So Tomo set it up with um these two guys from a, a, a company called Resilience Builders who have done mountains of treks and they like well being coaches coaches. Nick and, and Nick and Butters. Yes. Yeah, David, I, David, think. I actually yep. don't know what his proper name was because we just called him Butters the whole time, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure from the email it is David. So Tomo asked us who wanted to go, and we were supposed to go last year, and I had to pull out because I had to have some spinal surgery and I was devastated, but then it got canned because of COVID anyway. So I got to go with pretty much the same crew again this year, which was good. So Tomo sold it as a resilience-building first responders, people with PTSD or that have, you know, been struggling in the job and life and go together and go with these two guys with Butters and um, Nick and basically learn some resilience building and put some put some things in the tank for, for bad days. Mm. So I thought, okay, we'll give it a crack. Um, had a, you know, some rough stuff happen. So the little Territorian decided to jump on a plane and fly to Tasmania where I've never been and um, didn't know anyone. I ne- hadn't even met Tom. I'd only spoken to him online and, yeah, turned up and I am arrive in Launceston and think, oh, yeah, this is all right, meet everyone. They're a pretty good bunch. Everyone's a bit quiet. And then we get to the scout hut on the first night and then the humour starts and I start telling some of the territory stories and uh, the laughs are hit on and everyone just, uh, Tomo turns to me and says, Carmen, I really hope you come out of your shell while you're here. <laughs> <laughs> it was too late. He was being sarcastic. <laughs> um, and then the next day they're like, oh, we don't know if we're going to see snow or not. And I'm like, I want to see snow. I want to see snow. I've only ever seen it twice. I don't, I'm from the desert. I want to see snow. 
And I can tell you that by about 11 o'clock that morning, I never gave a shit if I never saw snow again in my life. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just because it was it was so, much, so, so cold. cold. Oh. You couldn't see the person in front of you. It was you were falling waist deep in holes. I got frostbite in places that you don't want to get frostbite. <laughs> Not really, but I was. I did say to we had a guy on there called Big Mac who was six foot eight, and he was sinking hips deep. And I told him that his sinking in the snow was giving new meaning to blue balls, because. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just we took two and a half hours to do seven hundred meters. It was wow. that foul. Well, Butters and Nick, shout out to you guys. She's not selling you well. She's not <laughs> selling you well, but sounds like she's come out of this a whole lot more resilient. <laughs> yes, definitely. We got to a heart and we're all sitting in there. Um, Tomo was wet to the bone. The rest of us couldn't feel our hands and feet and they were making a decision whether we turned around and called it quits wow. on the second day or whether we kept going. And I wouldn't have cared either way. I wouldn't have cared if we went back at that point in time. And about an hour after that, I wanted to go back and just close my eyes and wish myself out of there because I just kept falling over and over and over and over. And, over. <laughs> and I'm not a small person. You've got a six-foot person falling over in the snow and I've got a five-foot-four person walking with me trying to help me out of it with 20 kilos on my back. It's not a good look. <laughs> but we got through it. We got through it and it was probably one of the most rewarding days for everyone. It was raw and it was, we were vulnerable. We all, if people said they didn't struggle that day, they're a liar, they're, they're, they're total bullshitters. But it it really set the tone for the trip. And, you know, I was really frustrated and angry at myself when I arrived back because I'm like, I fell, fell over so many times getting pulled out. I was cold. I was cranky I've got a I keep falling over because I've got a dicky foot from a crash that I had years and years ago and I can't feel it so when it's in snow it's worse and having not walked on snow it was a whole new experience for me and I just I wasn't ready for it so but when we got back and Tomo pulled me aside and had a little chat to me and said don't be angry at what you think you didn't do be proud of what you've just just accomplished yeah. And yet he's right, it made the difference. And then I sat there the next day and thought, you know what, you did get through it. So, And then we only saw little bits. There was a little bit more snow later on and I can tell you that my sphincter went into the back of my throat <laughs> when I saw it again because <laughs> I'm just like, no way, no way. But we got through that and I only fell once that time. <laughs> oh, come. You know what I love about these physical experiences that we have is that whole stepping out of it afterwards and reflecting. And I don't know about you, but when I did that with the boxing ring, it was what I saw in life. It was the metaphor that it became in life. There's times I'll do something activity-wise and then go, ah, that's not the only place that I react like that. That's not the only – like if that's happening there, then that's happening in other places. That's right. And it doesn't need to. But it, I think when you put yourself into extreme situations, and that's certainly fumbling around in the freezing cold snow, getting frostbite in places you should never get frostbite. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely extreme. I love that. Tell me about the experience on top of that of doing something like this with a, a group of people who you know have 
a similar connection in terms of struggles, like everyone's is going to be different, but knowing that you're there with people who are have been through something or go through something or struggle with something, is there something extra special about that? Look, there is. I have been um, just a member on the Facebook group of the Code 9 Foundation for probably just over a year. Um, one of my friends here knew Tomo and put me onto it and he very graciously welcomed me in and put me on that uh, in the group to go on that trek last year. And, you know, I read the post and I'm not a big talker normally. I'll tell filthy jokes and funny stories, but I won't, I won't share the intimate stuff. And I guess that it was really hard. The, so the last time I went away with a group of police was um, 16 years ago and I went on a study tour in Egypt with a heap of Victorian police and it ended with six people dying and me getting pretty, um, pretty bashed up when the bus crashed. And so I had to go back on this one. The days leading up to it were, were quite hard. My anxiety was obviously going through the roof and to, and to turn up alone and not know anyone. So I had, to, and coming from Alice, you've nothing's direct. You've got to fly, you know, halfway around the world just to get to somewhere in Australia Plenty, so of time, plenty of time to overthink about everything, isn't there? Exactly. <laughs> so I flew to Melbourne. I got into this disgusting, well, not disgusting, but this boring little hotel room and I, I literally just sat down on the bed and burst into tears and went, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I can't do this. Um, thankfully, my flight was really early the next morning or I probably wouldn't have gone, in all honesty. Wow. wow. And I got to the airport and I'm sitting there and I saw these two blokes in front of me and I could hear them chatting and they were talking about, I think, football like American football, and then they started talking about the trek. And I thought, oh, they must be going on it. So I stood up to go over there and then I sat back down and then I stood up and then I sat down and then I stood up and I walked away towards the bathrooms and then I came back and I stood there. And Because as an extrovert as I am with a sense of humour, I'm exceptionally shy and I, I just can't. I just can't do that. So I finally, about two minutes before boarding, went up and said, oh, I'm really sorry to interrupt, but I just overheard of you guys going to Tassie. And it was Tomo and Tomo oh. and, um, and Kane. And I said, oh, I'm Carmen. But everyone knew me as Ruby because that was my Facebook profile. So it was a bit confusing as well. <laughs> Tomo knew my name. but And I sort of I introduced myself and they were so lovely and so friendly. But, you know, I knew that I was bright red. My knees were shaking and I'm just like, wow. So... Then my phone rang. So I got on the plane. I got there and it was good because they were at the airport with me. So, and one of the other girls had said she'd meet me at the airport and come and pick me up. And I think the difference is that it's you be, you're around people who understand. Yeah. Um, and that, that was probably the best part for me. You know, they use the, the, the logo is you are never alone. And, yeah. you know, living in the Northern Territory, you sometimes feel you are a bit isolated. Yeah, And, you know, like I said, it was hard to meet up with Victorian coppers again to go and do something and and think that there was going to be a positive outcome, not another negative one. You know, my I've got a 10-year-old daughter and she's crying the morning I leave because she doesn't oh. want me to get hurt because she knew what happened last, even though she wasn't born then. But, you know, she knows through life's, you know, times of what had happened and she's bawling her eyes out going please don't go mom I don't want you to be her I don't want anything to happen and all of this is resonating in the back of your head and mm, mm. you know we went out for dinner that night and we we shared a small snippet of ourselves and there was this um 
you know, everyone was fairly quiet and that night I wasn't foul. I was didn't bring the sense of humour out quite yet. I did at lunchtime because I was talking about having to charge. I have to charge my back after my back surgery. So we're talking, I was explaining my charger as a sex toy. So that was a like fun <laughs> conversation. But then the, the at dinner, it was a bit more sombre and, you know, we, we obviously met Nick and Butters and, it was, it was good. There was a few little laughs, but everyone sort of shared a little bit about themselves. And there's this beautiful woman called Nell who went on it, who was a cop and then a paramedic. She hasn't worked for a long time. She got assaulted at work. And as a result of assault, she actually lost the ability to speak. And then she, um, <sighs> she, um, at dinner that night, the anxiety, she was the one that picked me up at the airport the anxiety overtook her and she couldn't speak. She could only sign. And I just thought, you know what, we, we are all in the same boat. We've got different stories and we've got different demons. We've got different injuries, be it physical, mental, emotional. We've all got our scars, but we aren't alone because we all understand that we've all been through our own journeys, but they're, they're similar in so many ways. And I think that was the important part. And from that first night, I guess I felt like I could be me. I didn't have to hide who I was. I didn't have to hide my emotions. I can't stand crying in front of people, even though sometimes I do. But I just felt that, you know, if I wanted to laugh, if I wanted to fart, if I wanted to, you know, <laughs> tell a funny story, I could. And we did. You know, we went to sleep at night playing fart tennis with Nick. <laughs> and we're in a little cabin on a wooden bench, on a sleeping bag with a, on a wooden bench with a little Mattress underneath. When I say little, his is quite airy, and every time he rolled over, it sounded like a walrus colony. But and we would just, we were playing fart tennis, but he was cheating because every time I would get in form, he'd go, "All right, that's it, I'm retiring," and I'm like, "Oh, you're gonna lose, you're gonna lose, that's it." But we all joined in, we all did it. It was just, but we shared the good times, we shared the hard times, we shared some part, some of us shared parts of our story, some may have shared, you know their whole story in a brief thing, but we sat down, including Nick and Butters, you know, they've got their own, mm. their own stories and that's why they do this and they do it so well, but they weren't just wellbeing coaches. They were us. They were with us. They did it with us. And yes. you know, what we felt, what I felt, everyone felt, you know, and I think it was, the, everyone was extremely supportive naturally. And that's the difference because they understand what they understand what having, these mental challenges are so you're not judged and that's the most important thing is not to be judged yeah yeah how long were you when did you start in the police force uh i started in january 1998 boom and long time ago yeah and how are you still active or how long did you remain active as a police i am still a police officer i'm yep. on leave moment um so I've just got my foster kids back and I've just finished 12 years running child abuse and I needed some time out wow you got foster yeah. kids as well tell me about that so I've got two kids of my own and two foster kids I'm a single parent I um I my ex and I got foster kids when they were babies so we got a little boy when he was eight months old he was wow. five weeks younger than my daughter and then we got his sister when she was nine weeks old. And then we had a son of our own and we had them. And then when we separated, they stayed with her because she did it under family daycare, but then they sent them back to family um, when they were seven and six. So that was just over two years ago. 
and they we thought it was going to be like I didn't lose any contact with them obviously and even when they they were sent up north to Darwin or to Jabiru and then Darwin and I continued having contact and spent school holidays up there with my kids because my kids were devastated when they went because it was their yeah. brother and that's sister, six or you know, seven they, years right yes yep um and oh it, it was cruel you know, it was cruel. They sent them back to family because, you know, it's more important for them to be with um, an Indigenous family is, is the policy here. Okay, yeah. But they they got a rough time. They got, they got beaten and they got starved. They got neglected. They got treated like rubbish. And finally, after 18 months, the department removed them and they asked if they could come back and stay with me. So the department rang me and said, would you have them back? They want to stay with you, not with my ex. And I said send them down. But then they made them wait in Darwin another six months till they finished the school year before they sent them down, which <laughs> did not make them happy. So I've had them back since just before, like literally six days before Christmas, I got them back. Oh, my heart is just, oh, exploding. Um, it, it's such a, a thing to process to think that after six years as a family, six, seven years, that's all they know. And it's still, and I understand this, the culture and connection with family, but it's it's a tough one, isn't it? It is, and you know, being a police officer, that the kids were from here, even, and they sent them to Darwin, but their their mother's here, their father is incarcerated, and um, I I said I will take them in school holidays out to community and let them hang with their cousins, meet their family, but they stay with me at night so I know they're safe. I stay in the mm. police accommodation out there and that wasn't good enough. It was not good enough. Really? Um, and the sad thing is they've both got, um, they've both got like, so the, the young fella's got fetal alcohol. So he's, and he's ADHD and he's got, you know, some cognitive issues and some attachment trauma and stuff like that. And the little, the little girl is also ADHD and, um, She's got a mood defiance disorder, which is very prevalent, especially after two years of being. That sounds like a diagnosis that would fit well with me, to be honest. (laughs) I call it domestic nastiness disorder. Oh, wow. (laughs) Because at school she is an angel. But they are both, like, the little girl is one of the smartest kids. She just did the NAPLAN testing and she's eight and she tests up as an 11-year-old in reading, spelling, Wow. She's so articulate. She's just, you know, she just needed that opportunity. And the little fella, like the boy, he he's ten now. So, and he was told we were told at four he'd never read and write. And he's above average in his reading, and he's he's really smart, and he's quite the little jokester. And he's just he's got one of those smiles that he walks into a room and he smiles, and it infects everybody. He's just oh. they're just gorgeous kids, and my kids were just so happy to have them back. Testament so, to you is it is it has it is it a hard road to be a um to be a foster mum? Um, I imagine there's a lot of turbulence. Yeah, look, and it's hard when they've been away for two years and they learn or have to live with some some bad habits and some bad behaviour. And you know, I'll walk up to give them a hug and they'll flinch from me, and that oh. that hurts. It hurts a lot, but it's because they used to getting hit because they got beaten with mop handles and coat hangers and. So they used to getting hit um, instead. So I'm like, don't flinch from me. I'm never going to hit you. I, I'm not that, you know, I'm not that sort of person. I don't smack my kids. They, they get told off if they're naughty. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not, you know, I would never use violence against them. So it is it is a hard road. There's been, 
there's been some trials and tribulations in the last seven months, believe me. Oh, (laughs) you are an absolute warrior. I just think people like you astound me. I just, it's amazing. I just don't know how my heart would cope being close to that, you know, close to that type of experience. And it's hard because I said, if they come back, you never take them again. I can't do this to myself or my children again or to them. It's not fair. And they're not allowed to say that. So I have to agree that, had to agree that if a family member came along that lived in town that didn't drink, that was able to give them their medication and take them to all the supports that they need and look after them properly and transition properly, then they could go. But the chances of that are pretty much zero to hell so i've got them now until they turn 18 oh that's so it's amazing to hear yeah that's amazing so which is which is a relief um and you know just getting them back in getting them counseling getting them back in with their ot's and just getting them back into school the school that they used to go to here where their friends are and just it's just about love and care you know it's yeah yeah what was the driver what was the driver for yourself and your your husband at the time to look at fostering who's who's who brought that up so my my partner was a female so um Sorry, we, my apologies. No, no. That was no. totally 1998 of me. <laughs> All, good. Tiff. All good. I could call her a few other things than female now, but <laughs> you don't talk about exes like that, do you? Um, <laughs> no, I. Um, so when we had our daughter, so after the crash in Egypt, I wasn't able to have children. Um, that was part of the, um, the result of my injuries, which was, you know, it was. I, I thought I wanted them. I wasn't hundred percent sure, but when it's taken, when the choice is taken away from you, it, it's, it's hard. Yes. So we, we, um, did IVF or IUI or, and we had our daughter. And so my partner wanted to have time off home with her while I was working. Cause I earned the bigger, the bigger bucks. So I was the one that had to stay at work. And as a result of that, she decided to do family daycare and have so that she was still earning an income but home with our daughter. Yeah. Um, and so as a part of family daycare, you would do emergency care um, because there's not enough foster carers. So it's, it's like foster care, but it's different. It's, yep. It pays a lot more money basically. Um, and so little Tessie, the, the, my son, the 10-year-old, yep. he came to us for two weeks. That's when we got him at eight months old and he's now 10 and I've still got him other than the two years out in between. Wow. <laughs> so it was sort of, yeah. And then obviously when his sister was taken into care, I just said straight away to my partner and and to the department, the siblings, they need to be together. You can't separate them. Mm-hmm. We'll take it. And mm-hmm. so we did. And it was actually really funny because when we had our my, my, son, my actual son, my, when we told my daughter, she said, is it going to be brown or white, mum? And I said, baby, it's going to be white. Well, Mama Jay's had brown babies. Look at Terry and Nora. (laughs) That's how close she is to them as a family. Like, and when they left to go to family, she was devastated. And she, so she was only seven as well. And she just, how do you explain to a seven-year-old that it's not their fault? She's like, I fought with them too much. They made them go away. And I'm like, honey, you've done nothing. Like I, as an adult, I don't understand why they do it. I get the concept, but I don't understand after that long why they do it. How do you explain that to a seven-year-old? 
Oh, so just uh, yeah. the the reunion, we went up to Darwin and I took my son and daughter up with me when we went to pick them up. I drove up there to, to bring them back and it just, it was just, it melted me. It absolutely melted me. And it's, you know, it makes you a little bit soppy when you see, you know, the tough copper gets a little bit marshmallow <laughs> inside when you see things like that. And because when I, I discussed it with my daughter before I agreed to say yes, because, you know, it's her life as well. Cause I have 50, 50 custody with my son and daughter, with my ex week on yep. week off. So I said to her, how do you feel about this? And she just went, yes, she didn't <sighs> even have to think about it. So yeah, she's, she's got a beautiful little soul, that girl as well. So, but it was her brother and sister for, her, you know, for her life. So, yeah. That's so wonderful. Would you be open to sharing a little bit about your experience? Was it 16 years ago in the bus? The tr- yeah. Tr- <laughs> so as it little funny. or as much as you like. No, no, it's all good. It, it was it was actually funny because when on this trek we just did, when we got there and um, we were sitting at dinner that first night and Nick said, yeah, we're just going to get a bus and do this. And I just stopped and said, what, a bus? And he said, yeah. And I said, no one mentioned a bus. Oh. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, I don't do buses. And the reality is if they had told me before I left Alice Springs I had to get on a bus, I would not have gone on that trek. So in wow. January 2006, so I, I crossed a few hurdles on that trip. <laughs> so in January 2006 I was invited by a couple of coppers here, friends of mine, who were going on a police study tour with a heap of Victorian coppers. It was for police, police employees, friends and family. And um, they invited me to go on this trip with them over to Egypt. And I thought, oh, yeah, bang on, why not, something different. And I was living in, I just, no, I was living in Tennant Creek. No, I wasn't. I just moved to Alice Springs because Tennant Creek wouldn't give me the leave. So I'd done well over my two years there. So I moved to Alice Springs and I'd spent 13 days in Alice Springs working on a murder. And I had, I'd bought a house that I hadn't unpacked. So I opened a box, threw a few clothes in a bag, chucked it in the car, drove to Darwin, stayed at their house and got on the plane the next day. We flew to KL and then we went over to Egypt. And so it was my two friends, they were superintendents in the police force at the time, but I'd known them my whole career, which was about what 10 years then, (laughs) eight years, nine years. And then their 12 year old, one of them's 12-year-old daughter, and I invited a nurse friend of mine from Tennant Creek because January the year before her husband passed away in the middle of a triathlon on Australia Day. Oh. And so I said to her, don't be in Tennant, why don't you come with me as well? And she brought her two, her two sons who were uh, nearly adults. So off we went with this um, dude from Victoria who advertised in the police magazine all the time about these tours, and it was titled a police study tour so you took your uniform over went to the police academy over there and then you could claim it on your tax apparently oh, oh boom so I was gonna say pack, what's a police study tour yeah so pack the old khaki uniform because we were still wearing khaki then so you know <laughs> blend in with the sand why don't you so we went over there and when we got there we had to give him out it was weird we had to give him our passports we couldn't stay in the hotel the five-star hotel that was booked because apparently there was some holiday on so we couldn't use that hotel. And this is a guy who's born in Egypt, but he lives in, in in Melbourne and runs a tour business, right? So I'm like, this is all a bit dodgy. I'm not real keen about handing over my passport. Anyway, the tour all changed. The itinerary changed. So we did the first day we went to, I can't remember where we went. I think the first day we went to the, uh, the 
the pyramids and the sphinx and that sort of stuff. So at least I got to see those. I would have been really, really pissed off because <laughs> the whole trip was meant to be about 30 days. Oh. Um, and then the second day we went to the police academy and, wow, talk about a flash police academy. They put on – we were in there in our little khaki uniforms and, you know, I think a few Victorians wore theirs as well. And there were firefighters and stuff on there too. It wasn't all police. And there were a few Queenslanders and there was a plastic surgeon from – Sydney on there because he had done work on the tour operator's wife. So he got invited as well. Yeah. Um, weird, but, and then we, um, so we did, and they put on a, a horse show and a dog show and, you know, then they took us to civil defense, which is their ambulance and um, fire service. And their equipment was absolutely amazing, amazing, but it was long days. And then, um, you know, we hadn't had much sleep and the drivers were tired on the buses. We had two buses. Anyway, we get on the third day and I reckon that they dropped us off really, really late. So the drivers have probably only had about four or five hours downtime between oh. the, the trips before they picked us up. And on the third day, we went to El Alamein and Alexandria. So the two buses off they went and um, we're traveling along. And when we get to El Alamein, you know, pretty amazing place. It was pretty, you know, pretty awesome to see. It's just, and we go off to Alexandria and on the other bus, one of the girl, one of the girls on there went and bought the driver some chocolate and said, here, can I give you this? You're falling asleep. You're really tired. Um, you know, here, have some chocolate, have some sugar. Anyway, we went and did our dinner and I drank, we drank Egyptian wine that night, our table. And I tell you, I think I would rather drink toilet cleaner. Oh, it was foul. <laughs> so I I wanted to have a beer and then they're like, oh, let's order a bottle of wine. And then they tasted it. And it, it was toilet cleaner with a chlorine aftertaste. And they're like, oh, you have to drink it now. You said you'd share. Come on, don't be silly, like taking the piss out of me. So I picked the glass up and scaled it. Well, I think my pupils shrunk to the size of pinpricks. <laughs> and I'm just like, I think, I think I've just poisoned myself. <laughs> So we decided after that to go to a smoke smoking house and smoke. Is it the hookers, hookers, whatever you call them, the fruit? No, not smoke an actual hooker, but you know, <laughs> like, the pipe. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> not into that. <laughs> so we <laughs> we decided they we went in there. So we were meant to leave early, and we didn't end up leaving. Alexandria until about 8 30 that night and we'd been on the road since about six that morning so we all get onto the buses and off we go and the bus drivers were for lack of a better word they were twats mm. so they would spend the whole time on the bus texting overtaking each other racing each other just being general idiots so the bus full of police with a bus full of police, and we had plainclothes military or plainclothes police officers from Egypt on each bus. Mm. And on the day we did the police academy, and that we had a police escort car as well. Wow. So on this day, the plainclothes officers sit on our bus with their little, you know, machine guns hidden under their jacket, and off we go. So they play their little games, and then anyway, the other bus is in front, and you know, I think the speed limit was ninety or a hundred, and you know. That was just a that was just a guide, really, of you know something you shouldn't go under. And next minute, the uh, bus in front just drives off the road, and I'm awake watching it. And my friend Helen from Darwin, the copper, was sitting there watching it too. And I, she's just like, "Oh my god!" And I'm just in my head, 
I probably shouldn't say the words live, but I'm pretty just pretty much just going, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. So just obviously the driver had gone to sleep and it just veered straight off the road and it hit a – so we were 50 k's out of Cairo, so you're pretty much in the middle of buttfuck nowhere with dirt and dirt and a bit more dirt, and it hits this sandbank and it just flips. The bus flips. Shit. And it rolls, it hits the ground, windows shattered, it – rolls in the air again, you can see people being thrown out of the windows. Ah. So it ended up rolling four times and it came to rest basically on its side facing the opposite direction, like the direction we'd come from. Wow. So our driver pulled over and I'm just sitting there going, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, just watching. You know, everyone else was, well, not everyone, most others were asleep and didn't actually see that part happen. And it just... I think you just kick into work mode. Like, so yeah. the only people that got off the bus were myself, my two police female friends from Darwin and my friend from Tennant, who was a nurse. We were the four people that got off the bus to go and help everyone else just sat there. And I don't remember saying this, but apparently I'm running down the road going, let's do this, let's do this, you know, try, obviously trying to pump myself up for what I was about to see. Yeah. And you know, the first person that I got to was deceased and he was a Victorian copper and I'd had breakfast with him and his wife that morning. Mm. And then, you know, then there, and you, it, it's eerie because it's dark, it had been raining, you're in sand and there's nothing. You know, there's nothing but all you can hear is people crying out and just it was really eerie. And I... I went to the next person and he was a commander of Victorian police with a nasty leg injury and Jeanette and Helen, my two friends, one of them stayed with him. Helen ran back to the bus to tell everyone to get off their asses and come back and help. And then I ran down the length of the bus because I thought, you know, he's passed away, someone else is helping Ashley, I'll run down and see what I can do, just see who needs help, like just try and, you know, a bit of a triage and see who needs to help the most. And as I was running down the length of the bus, about midway down the bus, I just saw a hand sticking out of the sand, scratching, nothing else, just a hand. But it was moving and I'm just like, shit. So I got down on my hands and knees and dug and I dug out a lady called Lynn. I dug her head out and it was her husband that had gone through the window and passed away, the Victorian copper. <sighs> and I dug her head out and so she could breathe at least, you know, because obviously so when the bus crashed, she'd gone through the broken window and been buried in the sand. Oh, my God. And I'm just like, shit, um, you know. So I dug her head out. I was like, you're okay, you can breathe now. I'm going to go and help other people, you know, and she's like, don't leave me, please don't leave me. And there, there was diesel and liquids running down the bus, splashing in the sand, splashing, you know, and that was splashing in her face. And I thought, you know what, if all I had, sticking out of the sand was my head and neck and a hand, I probably wouldn't want to be left alone either. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll try and dig you out some more. So I basically squatted over the top of her so her head was pretty much under my stomach region. I had my butt in the air, you know, and it's a pretty good target. <laughs> and I had my hands in trying to dig her shoulders out. Now, obviously I didn't know at the time her leg was trapped inside the bus, but I didn't know that. I was just trying to free her up a bit more so she you know you're panicking you're trapped you know she's been buried alive and anyway while I'm uh got my butt in the air digging her out the the bus roof fell off and decided to use my butt as a target and slammed me straight across the bottom of my back and 
put my femur straight through my hip and straight through my stomach, like inside oh. and up oh. and broke a few ribs and ended up on the other side of my body, you know, a little higher than it should have been. And I, I hit the dirt, the sand, and I was face full of sand. I couldn't breathe and instantly I couldn't feel my legs. I just instantly knew that I thought my back was broken because that's where I'd been here and I just had nothing from the waist down, nothing at all. And I remember yelling out, get it off me, it hurts because I just, you know, I've got the full weight of the roof, the air conditioning system, everything just laying on top of me. And it's funny, like I'm, I'm not a religious person in any way, shape or form and, you know, each to their own. But, you know, some of the things I guess we see as police, you just sometimes lose a bit of faith. And I laid there and I just went, while I'm not religious, I do believe that we're all here for a reason. And it might be the tiniest little reason or it might be a big reason, but we're all here to do something. Mm. That's my thoughts anyway. So I'm laying there going, she better live. And then I'm like, I'm going to die. I'm 30 years old and I'm going to die eating sand in the middle of the Egyptian desert. Holiday of a lifetime, my ass. What a joke. She better survive or this was not worth it. Um, you know, or I'm, and I, I, I was calm, weirdly calm and accepted that I was going to die. There were four females that got off that bus to help. I was one of them. There were three left. And I thought, they're not going to be able to lift this off me. I'm stuck. This is, I'm going to not be able, like I, I could barely breathe. I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to get out. This is it. I'm dead. You know, I'm dead. I hope she survives. I really hope she survives. And I, it sometimes scares me how calm I was about it. Um, and maybe it was shock. I don't know. But the next thing I remember is being held under my armpits and my knees. And I said to my friends after I must've passed out and they went, Oh no, you didn't. They said when they, when they, a few people like the so-called Egyptian ambulances that weren't from civil defense, but the ones I have on the side of the road turned up and a few people and they just grabbed a leg and pulled me out slip I screamed like a stuck pig but I don't remember that so my brain has obviously chosen to you know remove that memory which I'm extremely glad for and I don't care if I never get it back <laughs> but, and then I, I remember yelling at this bloke that was holding me saying can you please just put me down it hurts it hurts put me down put me down and I walked up to this van and when I say van it was an ambulance but I use that word extremely lightly so basically it's a van with two molded benches in it and nothing else. Oh. They opened the door. There were already five people in it. And he literally just tossed me in on top of one of the ladies in there. Now that lady, um, unfortunately she passed away last year, but her and her daughter were on the trip and her daughter is now the godmother of my daughter. Oh. So we made a very good a bond out of it, but her mum, suffered a open brain injury and her elbow went through the windscreen. Uh, sorry, went through the side window on one, one of the, one of the times it rolled and it smashed up her elbow and she, she was never able to use her arm for the rest of it, for the rest of the time that she was alive. But um, I was thrown on top of her and she's just kicking around as you would, because, you know, she's got a bit of a brain hanging out the side of her head and Next minute, I'm trying to hang on to her, and, and then next thing, I'm on the ground. I'm on the floor of the van, and I'm like, "What? Why have I moved? What's happened?" And one of the others it was her daughter. Yells out, "You've shut her fucking legs in the door. Open the doors." Oh. So my legs 
still hanging out of the ambulance and they'd slam the doors on him, oh. which had caused me to roll off the bench. And, of course, I didn't, I couldn't feel my legs, so I didn't know that. Anyway, I'm just gripping on for dear life and I'm, I'm just going, this, this is not real. I'm having a nightmare. I'm going to wake up any minute now and this is not happening. It can't be happening. And then it just the things that go through your head, you know, I'm like, shit, did I tick the travel insurance box? <laughs> Jesus, I hope I did. <laughs> like just did you? The things that you yeah, I did, thank God. <laughs> but just the things you think of. And so we get to this hospital, and again, I'll use that term loosely. I've probably seen cleaner houses in um busted ass camps here in the Northern Territory. Yeah. And they opened the doors and they grabbed me by the ankles and just pulled me. So I've gone thunk down onto the bumper, lifted me onto a bed, and they wheeled me into a room and left me there. And there was a Egyptian, like an Arabic male down the other end, looking at his eye in a mirror and me. And that was it. I didn't see anybody else again for a while. And then um, Sue Ellen, the one, the friend that's the one that I said, now my daughter's godmother, she wandered past and I took, every valuable thing I had on me off and I said, cause she got a bruised at collarbone and a chunk cut off a, like a, a, a lip injury. She was physically lucky. I won't say she was lucky in any other way, but physically she was lucky. And I said, can you please take this stuff? Please just take it. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Can you please take it? Now she was obviously freaking out because her mum was taken into a room with a bit of her brain hanging out, bleeding from the ears and she wasn't allowed to go in there. So I'm laying there and finally this guy in white comes in and he says, oh, and I said, can you please put something under my legs? Like I was just in agony. Like I couldn't feel my legs, but my stomach and my chest, but I was still struggling to breathe from the broken ribs and everything had had taken a little bit of a pounding and then the old femur giving it a smash up and I'm just like, can you please do something? So he lifted my pants leg up by my knee, one leg, and he said, good. And I said, it's better. Can you, can you put a pillow under it? Do something. And he's like, good. And then just dropped it and walked away. And I, that's probably the first time I actually did utter a small scream. Um, <sighs> and I, I can't tell you how long after they came and wheeled me into a room and I saw this bench covered in sand and this archaic looking machine, which was obviously an x-ray machine. And they wheeled the bed. I was on next to it and said, move. And I said, I can't, I can't move. I actually couldn't move. Like I couldn't sit up. I couldn't do anything. My, my ribs are broken. I've got no feeling from the waist down. Like, and I mean completely dead. And I'm like, I can't. And they're like, move. And I'm like, can't, I can't move. Because at that point, if I could have, I would have dragged my sorry ass out of that hospital and taken my chances on the street. God, this sounds so horrific. Anyway, they end up lifting me up by my shoulders and my ankles and dropping me on the bench and still, still. So I'm just laying there and it's like, yeah, well, I can move a lot anyway, not. And then they come back and then someone, some dude in white walks up to me and said, your hip dislocated, no? And I'm like, dude, it's got to be way more than dislocated hip. I can't feel anything. No, no, hip dislocated. We fix, we fix. Operation. I'm like, no, 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 you're not touching me. You're not touching me. Fucking shoves a needle in the back of my hand and I'm just like, God help me. <laughs> Oh. Next minute I wake up to these two dodgy looking blokes wheeling me down a corridor, turning corners, hitting the bed into corners, wheel me into this room. There's a, a red bottle sitting plastic, like a car oil bottle sitting between my legs, right, between my shins. And mm. they've picked it up and thrown it 
and I mean thrown over the end of the bed and it's tied to strings, which is bandaged and stuck onto my leg. And that was my traction. So they'd gone into surgery, they'd pulled the femur back down and then that was the traction. And I was laying there. I still had no feeling from the waist down. And I was just like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is, and you could hear people moaning and, you know, I had no idea where Jeanette and Helen were, my friends or, or Mary. And there was, there was blood and feces smeared on the wall. There was rubbish and shit like feces on the floor. There was a cat sitting in the windowsill meowing. I'm just like, my God, I'm going to die. If the bus didn't kill me, this is. Anyway, after a little while, I couldn't handle it. I just couldn't handle it. And I'm like, is anyone there? Please, is anyone there? Anyway, Sue Ellen, the same girl, walked in again. And I'm like, she's like, what What can I do? And I said, I don't know. I just, I said, do you know where Jeanette and Helen are? And she's like, I'll go and find them. And she walked out and I'm like, you idiot. Why did you do that? Why did you send her away? Anyway, she came back and she said, they're just trying to work out where everyone is. Um, and then she sat there and talked to me. Just talk, She said, what do you want me to do? I said, just talk to me. Please just talk to me. So she sat there and told me about her life um, and it helped her and it helped me. And we became amazing friends as a result of that, hence the reason that she's my daughter's godmother. But And anyway, Jeanette and Helen finally come, <laughs> finally come down and I'm like, I think I have to go to the toilet, but I can't tell because the pain in my stomach's so severe. And they said, just do it. And I said, I can't, I can't make anything work, but I've got, you know, and they're like, just, it'll be warm. It'll be warm. Just do it. And I'm like, I can't, nothing is working. I could not make anything work. Wow. And so they went up to the, um, they went up to the nurse's station and literally all the staff at the hospital were standing in one little room just talking while everyone was moaning because I don't think they knew what to do. I don't think they'd seen so much significant trauma. Um, and then we, they said, they handed Jeanette a pan because she said, look, she needs, I think she needs a toilet, you know, cause it was obviously all just building up in me and they're like, Oh, um, handed her a pan. She's like, she can't use it. She's got, she's got nothing from the waist down. Anyway, a few minutes later, this dude turns up and obviously when they did the surgery, they'd taken my, my, my long pants off. I still had my undies on and one of their gowns. Anyway, he comes in, he said, oh, you had catheter, catheter before? And I'm like, no, no, God help me, no. And he's like, ah. Oh. And then he goes, you virgin? And I'm like, I look at Jeanette and I'm going, what the fuck has that got to do with having a catheter? And I'm like, you know what? I don't, I can't feel anything. And if this relieves a bit of pressure, you know, in my upper stomach, lower chest and whatever. So next minute he's doing what he needs to do. And he stands up and says, first time, first time for me. And I'm like, hell. oh God. Anyway, I'm just like, whatever. And then Jeanette's like, I've got to go and just talk to see where some other people are. Don't let them take you anywhere without me. So bless them, they had contacted one of their friends who was our commissioner here in the Territory Staff Officer and told her what happened. The commissioner got onto the, um, what do you call it, the embassy and that to, to get us moved out of that hospital, which I didn't know. So soon these guys come in, they start wheeling me out, and I'm like, no, no, stop, don't take me anywhere, stop, stop. And they're like, no, and I'm like yelling out. So I'm like, so well and so well, what I said, tell Jeanette I've gone this way. I don't know where I'm going. Just, you know, because obviously language was a massive barrier. Mm. So we um, we get to the end of the corridor and I look to, I, they're turning to my right and I'm looking to my left and I see Jeanette and I'm like, Jeanette, I'm going this way. Anyway, she comes with me. <laughs> we put in a lift. We go down the lift. 
we get down the bottom and there's a guy there and he grabs the end of the bed and he pulls it out the lift for the lift. You're going over the bumps like to dunk to dunk. And then the guy in the lift pulls it back and then then pulls it back again. And they're having this argument in Arabic. And I'm just like, can you stop pulling me over the bumps? Please just oh. stop. Anyway, as it turns out, they were having an argument because the guy that took me downstairs wanted money for the gown I was wearing and because I'd had x-rays and an operation and they wanted money. And I, if I'd known that, I would have said, give them whatever, just get me the hell out of here. Anyway, they finally sorted it. We went, I got put into the van ambulance again, at, at, but on a bed this time. Jeanette was with me and I'm sitting there and, and at one point, and one of my friends told me later on, at one point the news had reported that I'd actually been killed in it. And oh. so my phone rang, I'd had my phone over there, my phone rang and there's this hysterical person on me and Jeanette was talking to him, no, she's alive, she's here, you know, she's okay. And um, we're driving along and it was really cold, like really, really cold. And I was like, this is, why is it getting so cold? And Jeanette turns to the guy and she's like, excuse me, excuse me. And he's like, he looks at her because there's a guy sitting in the back with this little box window that you look into the driver and she goes like this with her head and I lifted my head up and the ambulance doors were open. They hadn't shut them properly and Jeanette was holding the stretcher in the ambulance. Oh, my so God. So he starts talking to the driver in language. The driver slams the skids on. The door's shut. He gets up and checks them and gets, good now, good now, and off we go. We pull up at this next hospital. Now, in this whole period of time, this had been about 10 hours by now, I had not had one piece of pain relief, not one, other than when they knocked me out to pull my bone back to where it should be. And we get to this new hospital. They clip they clip a number on my shirt and say, this is your patient number, and I lift my gown up so I can see it, and it was number 13. Oh, How fitting is that? How fitting is that? Of course that? it is. <laughs> anyway, next minute. Jab in the leg, a bit of morphine, and I'm like, "Wow, this is this is helping." So they went and did some more exercise. So we we're in this military hospital, and and it was nice, but you had to pay for water, you had to pay for everything. Everything cost money, and language was still a barrier. And so we were there. Um, I think we were there for I can't remember if it was six or eight days. And I, so I, if I'm in pain, I I go quiet. I don't say a lot. And um, I had no pain relief for days and I was just slipping in and out of consciousness and I was dying. Anyway, they're like, so Helen, he was a trooper. She's, she's calls, she calls a, a sledgehammer, a, an effing sledgehammer. She'll, mm. she'll smack it and she'll smack it hard. She's as subtle as not. Anyway, she goes and rips the nurse a new one and they're like, she's not wailing, she's not in pain. And I'm like, so apparently if you're in pain over there, you have to wail. <sighs> So they finally hooked me up with one of those PCA machines where you can pump it in yourself. Yeah. I don't think my thumb came off of it. <laughs> so they flew some Australian doctors over, checked us all out, and they decided they had to do the surgery in Egypt, um, more surgery, and they were going to give me a hip replacement but because of my age they decided not to. So they did, they did the surgery and I ended up with two plates and 13 screws um, in my pelvis and they put a, um, an epidural in so I wouldn't feel it because I got put on a Learjet eight hours after surgery, an Austrian Learjet, and flown to London. So eight hours after coming out of surgery, I was in the air and on my way with five others, um, Lynn being one of them, the lady that I'd pulled out, so I knew at that point obviously mm. she'd survived. Mm. Um, and 
we were all put in different hospitals in London and I spent 10 days there. And when they finally took the epidural out, I had my left leg back and my right leg to the knee, but I had nothing from the knee down. So my sciatic nerve had been crushed in the joint and um, that's why I'd lost the use of my legs. So the nerve damage was, you know, significant. So then they flew me to Sydney and then flew me back to Darwin because no one could do anything about it. And then about three and a half months later, I finally get out of hospital, still in a wheelchair, trying to use crutches with a gammy foot. So I had foot drop where it just drops down and I had no feeling in it. So when I, <laughs> I got up my, my granny Zimmer frame and tried to learn to walk again, you put your foot down and because you can't feel it, you just keep pushing and pushing and then you go ring up because you can't feel your toe on the floor, you can't feel your big toe. So, you know, you're learning to walk, closing your eyes and using your ears as balance and it, it was a big thing and when I got out of the hospital, I went and stayed with Jeanette and Helen and, you know, I, I got onto crutches with a with a splint and then I finally just got onto a splint. And I, I came back to Alice after 10 months. Like they offered to move me to Darwin. I'm like, nah, I chose to go there. I'm going to do this. And I'm a stubborn, stubborn bitch at the best of times, I'll be honest. But they did tell me when I was in London, I would probably never walk again. The chances wow. of walking were not not happening. And when I saw the x-ray, I, I did burst into tears and go, holy fuck, that is not me. That is a bionic woman. <sighs> Anyway, I went and saw we had a bit of a reunion in the November, I think, or was it the se- must have been the November, the September, no, the September. We all went to Melbourne to the police, um, cult, uh, police association building and we all got back together. And there's some still with obvious visible injuries, you know, nine months later. And that is the first time. So the whole time that I was in hospital, Jeanette and Helen would talk to Lynn, ring Lynn, and she'd be asleep if I was awake. And when she would ring, I would be asleep. So I never spoke to her after I dug her out of that bus. I never spoke to her in that nine months. And as time went on, because I knew her husband had died, I'd been informed that she'd had a lost her leg and that she was a paraplegic. Mm. And I just, I became very fearful that she was going to say to me, why didn't you just let me die there? And it was a really hard thing for me to process because I thought if she says that to me, where, where am I? What am I doing? Like, you know, none of this was, you know, you can't, you can't put a value on a human's life. And I obviously didn't know I was going to get hurt or, you know, you'd think things through twice, but you know, I go in and I help where I can. And, Mm. but if, if she didn't want to be alive, I'm like, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. So the first time we spoke to each other was in Melbourne at that police association building and she came up to me, she's in a wheelchair, I'm on crutches. And I just said, Lynn, you know, are you angry at me? And she's like, what? And I said, I'm just worried that you might be mad at me. And she's like, why would I be mad at you? She said, Carmen, you saved my life. She said, yes, my, my life is different now. George is dead. I don't have a leg. I can't walk and I'm in a wheelchair. She said, but I'm alive. Thanks to you. My life is different, but I am alive. And that helped, like, that helped a lot, like that, um, the headspace. It's mm. all about the headspace. Mm. And I had been so worried and so stressed about it. And so while I was there, I saw a neurologist and he basically, because they wanted my nerve to wait two years to see if my foot would come back. And he said, no, nah, your leg's just going to waste. So I 
I waited and then I went to Adelaide in the, the following fe- like the February after, so 13 months after the crash and I had my, my foot rebuilt and some – so they fused my ankle, took some bone out my hip, broke it, pinned it, oh. transferred some tendons and ligaments out of my toes into the ankle joint so I can walk and no one would ever know. I still can't feel it but no one would ever know. Um, so I was lucky. I was really, really lucky. Um, but yeah, it's the gift that keeps on giving. That's for sure. So, you know, four years later, I, a a screw came out of my pelvis and was causing me some grief and causing more numb patches in my legs. So I went to see the pelvic specialist down in Adelaide and he said, look, if I take it out and I hit your nerve, you're not going to walk. That will be it. If I don't take it out and you fall over and it hits the nerve, you're not going to walk. So I went and bought myself a motorbike, an R6, nice, fast sports road bike, racing bike, and then I went and had the surgery as a sign of good faith that I was going to walk again still when I came out of it. Anyway, when he he went in to take it out, I had a massive bone infection that they reckon if I'd left it another couple of weeks, I would have been dead. And I had no idea. Wow. He said when he opened up, there was just... And this is disgusting pus coming out of the bone. And so I ended up with a pick line in my arm straight into my heart with eight weeks of um, heavy-duty shit just pumping straight into me and then these tablets afterwards that make your tears and your liquid excretions from your body look like Fanta. It was really entertaining. Oh, uh, God. Fanta tears. And Fanta, Fanta urine too. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone tried to make me cry in that period so they could see the orange, like it was vibrant orange, run down my wow. face. Was, yeah, it was I amazing. Want to make you cry. <laughs> not now. I'm not on it anymore. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. So then, I've just yeah, I've lived, I've lived with that. I've I've lived with the nerve damage for my whole life, and you know I've been on medication for it, which I hate. And I went and had lignocaine infusions, and I finally <clears throat> last year got put onto my pain specialist put me onto this neurologist down in Adelaide, and. I, that was when I was meant to do the trek. I went down and had a trial surgery for a neurostimulator um, and it worked. And so he wanted to do it straight away and that's why I had to cancel the trek then. And so now I've got this machine in my back that I have to charge every day <laughs> and it's, uh, it basically sends some cross signals into the nerve, like the messages that go up to the brain from the nerve to try and wow. interfere in it. It's pretty amazing. It's 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 definitely was a life changing. Um, it's a life changing surgery for me because nerve pain is quite debilitating, and mm. you know I'd rather be shot or stabbed than have nerve pain. In all honesty, mm. um, so yeah, it it had been a it'd been a rough period, but it, I call it character building. I wouldn't call it the holiday of a lifetime. I'd say it's a holiday you never want. But you know, we lost we lost six people in that. One was a twelve year old boy. And his father, um, his uncle was the pl- a police officer from Bendigo and he he took like his brother-in-law and son on the trip with him and they were both killed in it. Um, you know, there was a copper from I think she was at Morwell or down Mowie Morwell Way, a single mum of a 10-year-old boy, she was killed in it. And then George, um, who was a training officer, had been a cop for multiple years, was killed in it. And then a, a Queenslander and a guy from um New South Wales. So it was pretty um it was pretty full on. The layers pretty- of trauma hearing that entire story, the layers of trauma and the dynamics are so incredibly complex. Yeah. You know, just- the the watching 
of that of that accident yourself, the actual just watching of that accident, the knowing of the people, um, the trauma of the tr- the whole hospital experience for you. Like uh, as you were telling me that, I was like, I don't, I, I can't even fathom what could be worse to experience the actual accident or the treatment like which one was like so equally traumatic Mm, it's and you know as a cop we go to we go to traumatic scenes Mm. you know and you you, we see a lot of things that the human brain is not made to see but when you we go there when it's happened we're not there while it's happening and and that was the difference on this is watching it happen and you know when we went through we went, I went down to Melbourne quite a few times because they held a coronial inquest in Melbourne because four of the deceased were Victorians. And it just, you know, the, the, the stories that they come up with, oh, no, the roof of the bus fell off while it was, um, when it rolled, that's why um, people flew out of the bus. And I'm like, no, no, I'm living testament of that. I wore that sucker right up my backside. <sighs> that sucker did not fall off until well and truly after the bus had come to a standstill. You know, and then it turns out that the tour guide wasn't insured and he transferred all his assets into his wife's name. So you don't have to be insured as a tour guide, tour operator in Victoria, apparently. Well, then you um, might so, want to drive a bit safe then. Yeah. So there's no, there was no compensation for anybody. Like, oh, for, you know, Lynn, you know, it's just, and when we're in the hospital, some of the women were touched up by the orderlies. The deceased had all their valuables robbed from them, wedding rings and everything while they are in the morgue. And just, you know, it's just insult to injury on top of it, you know, and it just, it took three days for that stinking tour guy, that tour operator to even come into the hospital and see us three days oh. before he even came in. And then, oh. cause Jeanette and Helen are like, just cancel the rest of our trip. I'm not doing it. No, no, you'll change your mind and go. They said, we are staying here with the injured, we are not going on the rest of the trip. Some continued on with the holiday. He didn't cancel any of it because he would have lost the money that he had paid for the side trips. So there were a few people that didn't go to Alexandria and El Alamein that day and then others on the bus that I was on still continued with the trip even after that. Serious? Yep. So, yeah. Wow. Is Egypt on my travel plans again in the near future? Shit, no. <laughs> it's kind of not on mine either now. <laughs> we, we discussed going over there as a, as a, um, like a, I guess a, an icebreaker to return. And I, I, I just don't think I could do it. I've seen the pyramids. I'm happy. <laughs> it's an interesting, um, yeah, that's an interesting thought process, isn't it? Or, or interesting thing to consider. Um, the experience of because you just wouldn't know how your body is going to re- body and mind are going to react. No, I mean it's. And it, in, sorry, you go. No, I was just going to say it's, a, it's even when you spoke of about the trek that you've just come back from and choosing that trek. You know, when you first were talking about that, I was thinking even that to me sounds like a really brave move to do a a resilience trek, not just a getaway. Like you had to yep. go and do this hard really physically hard, challenging thing that would be more triggering than just going on a group kind of, you know, bit of woo-woo, bit of, you know, kumbaya yep. a, around a campfire or something <laughs> in, the, in the nice tropical place. <laughs> That's right. And, it, you know, 
that, them saying you're not, you, you know, you probably won't walk again, you're not going to work, and I'm like, you watch me. You uh, fucking watch me. You, that's the best thing they could have said to me because I'm, like I said, I'm stubborn. But, you know, I, I was told I was never going to play sport again and that devastated me. So when I first joined the police force, I started playing rugby union and I got picked in the Australian women's side for rugby oh, union. Wow. And I played state ho- hockey. I played state softball. And sport was sport was my outlet. It was my, you know, I started I started my career as a hairdresser, switched over to policing because, you know, they're fairly similar. <laughs> and um, <laughs> the only thing that actually stayed constant was uh, was sport and motorbikes. So <laughs> I it it was hard. And from I the gave five up. minutes I've known you, hairdresser did not seem the typical <laughs> career choice. It's <laughs> not um, it's certainly not something that I and you know the funny thing is. I kept hairdressing after I joined the police. I reckon it's just because you like to have a chat. Well, not really because I don't like looking in the mirrors and (laughs) I actually held the record and still do for just cut salons for the most haircuts in an hour because in and out, mate, you're you're boring me, piss off. (laughs) But funny, I I managed the salon, the just cut salon in Darwin and when the 2000 Olympics came, just cuts got the franchise to work in the Olympic Village so they picked 23 hairdressers from around New Zealand, Australia, from Just Cut Salons yeah. to go and work at the Olympics, and I was one of them. So I spent a month working in the Olympic Village on holidays from the police, on paid holidays from the police, spent a month in there cutting all these athletes' hair. You can literally was- call yourself an Olympian. I know, right? Well, the amount of gold medals I got to wear was amazing. <laughs> There's wow. no pressure. They walk in and go, I won gold medal. You wear it, you give me gold medal haircut. And I'm just like, how about I just run out the door with your medal, mate, and pretend it's mine? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> but inspirational again, you know, and this is before, you know, I, I, I'd, um, I was um, playing rugby at the time and it just, you know, women's rugby was, <clears throat> excuse me, women's rugby was not what it is now. It's finally starting to come out and, get some recognition but you know having played women's rugby and playing at that elite level it's no softer than the men believe me mm. some of those girls are bitches oh mate I'm, I'm, I'm not big bitches <laughs> i've done my fair share of boxing competition i know that the women are no nicer than the men <laughs> oh yeah you know I, I was in there in the i was one of the team leaders in the in the thing and you, you sit there and you listen to people who have spent four years training and they go out and in the heat, snap, their hamstring goes. Mm. You know, the, the mm. pain, the devastation, but the joy and the pride. And, you yeah. know, I thought I was a tall person and then you get some Swedish basketballer come in that I could just about <laughs> walk through her legs without ducking and I'm like, holy shit, I'm short, you know. And then <laughs> Kathy Freeman wanders in to get her nails done mm. and everyone's all over her, you know, and she's like, can we have a photo? She's like, no, nah, I don't do photos, I don't do photos and, I said to her, I got chatting with her and I said, yeah, I'm from the Northern Territory. And she said, are you? And I said, yeah, I'm actually a police officer up there. I work, um, I was working in Darwin at the time. And I said, you know, I do a lot of work with the Indigenous. She goes, can I have a photo with you? I was the only person that she would have a photo with in there. And it just, and you know, the best part is my boss that owned the Just Cuts in Darwin lived in Sydney and he bought tickets to a lot of the events and one of them was I sat in that arena and watched Kathy Freeman win gold in that 200 metres. Wow. I was sitting in the stadium and it just, yeah. I love you know, that. And I, I got to go out and, and go to the same pubs the athletes did. I ate with them in the village. I walked around the village. I, 
I had full access to what the to what the athletes did, but you know there was a few moments that were just you just can't you just can't replace them. You know, I'm here having a photo with this lady, and then a few days later, there she is running on a track down on the ground in front of me, winning gold. And mm. you know, it's just yeah, it was amazing, absolutely amazing. So. You know, when it when they said no sport, it broke me. It was like I can't not play sport. This is my life. This is who I am. So, never playing sport again for the rest of my life was five years, and then I went back to volleyball, then hockey, then cricket, then softball, and uh, now I'm playing soccer as well. <laughs> so, wow! But you're, yeah, you're stubborn. incredible. <laughs> you're you're a very very. What are, your de- your story is definitely beyond what I expected to to hear and process. Um, I just want to say thank you for sharing it all, and that's all right. Yeah, thank you for being such an inspiration for people that have to go through hard shit. It's it look. It really is all about headspace, and you know it. It's hard when you go back to work after something like that, and then. You know, doing 12 years of, of child abuse with all the communities, we covered mm-hmm. 550,000 square kilometres and there were four people in my team with me being one of them. And it is heartbreaking and especially when you've got your own kids and foster kids and, you know, you know, and that's why I think it was so hard when they went back to family because you know what potentially can happen to them because it's just so, so prevalent. And, mm. you know, and when, when Tomo said to go on this trip, I'm like, you know what, I, I, I will. And, but I, I honestly, it was way harder than what I expected. Um, mm. And that's, you know, not not being a familiar person with the snow. And I remember Nick saying to me in the snow, because I'm taking, you know, six foot of me taking big gigantic steps in the snow and then you fall deep down and you're stuck. And he's like, just two little steps, do like this. And I remember we nearly got onto the boardwalk and the gust of wind hit and off it went because my balance wasn't really good with the dicky leg either. And mm. I missed the boardwalk and just went, you know, butt deep in the snow again. He's like, did I step there? Did you see me step there? And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but funnily enough, I think it was day five. There was a small group. So there was Alex Nell and myself and Nick. And we were walking, you know, enjoying what we were seeing. And I was being, uh, uh, my humour had really hit hard. And Nick, I, I played tour guide that day. So I'm spitting out everything he's, you know, a bit of undulating terrain here. And then there's a slight ascent down because they just lied to us the whole time and made us feel better about what we're doing. So we weren't mm-hmm. scared. And next minute he f- slips off the boardwalk and drops his foot. And I just turned around and I said, did I walk there? Did you <laughs> see me put my foot there? <laughs> I said, there's one in every group, isn't there? On your neck. And he just lost it. He just, he's just like, you don't forget anything. And I'm like, no. (laughs) So no, it was good. He was, I can honestly say that. And thanks to Tomo for, for putting me in touch with it. But it is honestly one of the best things I have ever done for myself um, with, with what's happened in life. It's been amazing. Wow. Well, that's a massive testament. Um, Last thing I'm going to ask you is, and this is, I feel like a silly question because it's amalgamation of a lot of things. But if you had one one piece of advice for anyone going through anything, one one thing, what would your focus be? What would you tell people to focus on or do to get through the hard shit? I would say don't ever give up and don't ever think that you are alone and that there is – there is light at the end of the tunnel. There's always worse things going on around you and 
you just you've got to look you've got to look at things that you've done in the positive rather than in the negative mm. and that's something that Tomo taught me on that trip from that day you've got to look at what you achieved not whether you achieved it badly you achieved it and just work work on all of those small wins every every day is another win I love it. Well, thanks again, Carmen, so much. And thanks and a big shout out to Nick, Butters and Mark for putting the trek together and for pulling this conversation together. And thanks everyone for tuning in and listening.